Welcome to Grumpy GDPR. My name is Miloš Novovic and I'm an Associate Professor of Law at BI Norwegian Business School. All opinions today are entirely my own. And I'm Ria Alexandra Valle from No Ties Consulting. And hello once again to the Grumpy GDPR, your favorite podcast of all the time. Ria, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about yourself? As you can see, I'm practicing my sales pitches. Yes, you're, you're doing an amazing <laughs> job. <laughs> it's not even the best GDPR podcast. It's just the best podcast of all times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're most like GDPR podcast, uh, right? We have all sorts of analytics to prove that. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. I have started a new exciting project. So I uh, hope to be sharing a little bit about that uh, sometime later. But I have uh, hectic days, which is uh, awesome. That's super, super nice. My God, it's, you know, it's very nice in these winter months to actually have something to um, keep yourself occupied with. Yes. Otherwise, I feel like it would be very hard to cope with the darkness. And, you know, it's never a boring um, day with the GDPR, right? No, not at all. Not at all. So here are some thoughts and something I wanted to bring up to you today. So it's been the exam seasons or sorry, the exam season. And as you can imagine, you always have to come up with these creative problems for students to solve on the exam. And this year I was sitting and thinking, hmm, what could I possibly write about? So I write a short problem in which I say, oh, by the way, there was this Norwegian company which was negotiating with a Swedish data processor. And then they found this news article which said that they have uh, had a serious security breach. And then the Norwegian company just decided to use that in negotiations to bring the price down and then signed the agreement and went Clever. to the cheapest provider. Yes. And all the students said, all the students said, no, 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 this is wrong. So why don't we actually talk about due diligence? Oh my gosh, my favorite topic. But I'm curious, why did they say it was wrong? Oh, because they didn't, uh, there was no consequence to actually finding out about data breaches. They didn't follow up with anything. They should have asked whether or not there are sufficient guarantees, whether or not sufficiently the practices have been sufficiently changed. So I'm very proud of them, actually. Hmm. Something for more yeah. people to take note of, because you don't want to find yourself in an audit with a processor that had numerous breaches and you didn't do anything about it. So, yeah, let's dive into that. Yes. So you're my favorite auditor in the world. Or uh, <laughs> From what I understand, you have had tons of experience with actually doing audits and doing due diligence. So let's just start, you know, um, straight from the top, like... What's the first thing that comes to your mind when somebody says GDPR audit or due diligence? Fun. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, uh, apart from fun, I would actually, you know, I tend to take one step back and that is to what probably bores people now, but the ROPA, the record of processing activities, because if you don't have an overview and you don't know what you have, you, you you just lose control and you wouldn't be able to risk assess anything either because in order to do a risk assessment, you would first need to know what the value is and what you are protecting, right? So I think uh, we all need to go back one step to the overview. But that said, that would be one of the things that I would assess in an audit. So if you're looking at just the GDPR audit per se, I would look at the legal requirements as per the GDPR, and then I would do an assessment. And always you will find gaps, of course. And um, I think I, I do something a bit out of the ordinary because my checklist, they actually include, so they include traffic lights, which I think is pretty common. 
but uh, some people are colorblind, so I decided one day to add the smiley faces and sour faces. So you have the red traffic lights are actually super grumpy. They are <laughs> so grumpy, Milos. You, uh, yeah, I think you, you might have seen one of those. And then I have the yellow faces that are, you know, a bit discontent. And of course, the green faces. And I have to say, when I first do an audit, they are pretty rare, unfortunately. You know, I would just love to see this document with a uh, yellow, slightly discontent face. That sounds <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Um, no, it's it's such a nice idea, I guess, to make things uh, accessible to people, right? You know, it's so easy to understand if you look at all those horrible requirements and numerous checklist items and it already feels overwhelming. At least you get the really overall snapshot of how um, how it all is currently because you can look at how many red uh, traffic lights and faces there are and how many green and how many yellow and another thing I'll have to mention it that is extremely motivating for the team that gets involved to try to switch these to the greens and the yellows and because you don't necessarily want to switch them all to green but I think that's another uh, podcast episode and people get super motivated when we switch those lights to uh, yellow or green. Yeah, right. It's such an in, it's so incredible to give people something concrete and specific, something to work towards. I think for me, it's uh, always very motivating to engage in that type of work. But I guess you know, it's one thing to do it internally and to do like an internal audit, challenging in itself. Uh, I guess extremely challenging in itself. But external audits are where it gets really tricky, don't you think? And how so? Well, I would say that like, if you as a controller have to check what your processor is doing, I would imagine that that's far more challenging than you're doing like an internal compliance check. Just because of limited access to information and everything. Yes. So if we only look at the uh, processor due diligence and audit. So I was talking from just the high level perspective of an entire GDPR audit of an organization or a business. But if we are laser focused on processors, so that's you know, that's twofold. First of all, you have to do your due diligence before you appoint a processor. And then the next part is to maintain that overview and control that you are you are really sure that they are upholding their commitments to you. So it's twofold. Check the processors before you appoint them. And second, uh, main, make sure that you audit them regularly. And here you can do a high-level audit uh, if it's uh, a processor just processing, you know, your email at uh, the email addresses of your employees. So the level of audit w- could vary extremely depending on the proce- processor and the processing activity. Mm. But th- this is a very important point that you bring up and that sometimes gets a bit lost in the details. It's that you're not only obliged to check before you engage them, but you're also obliged to sometimes follow up with more continuous assessments and sometimes even in the cases where you don't actually suspect any wrongdoing to have taken place. And from what I recall, it was the Danish Data Protection Authority. And uh, we have spoken extensively <laughs> to them, actually, uh, one of the first things that I was really impressed about on their website were these guidelines about who, how to do audits and how often you should follow up with your processor. Uh, you mentioned those as well, right? Uh, you seemed to have liked them 
as much as oh, I do. Oh yes, absolutely. And I have to give it to the Danish DPA that uh, their guidance that they make are so concrete and you can actually use it in practice in your everyday work, which is absolutely fantastic. So when they came out with the guidance, I immediately translated it to English for my audience, of course, and my clients. And some say that it's a very high level and that it may be too high level. But one thing's for sure, it's better than nothing. And it gives you an actual concrete tool that you can actually use when you uh, when you audit your processor so they say something about uh, what the level of audit should be depending on the processing activity etc so we can go through uh, some of the factors that would influence this yeah so i think uh, picking um, just following up on the thought of it's too abstract like of course of course it is i think it's the most useful tool i have seen it like actually genuinely helped me in day-to-day work with these issues because i think uh, i think it's so easy to think they're going to give us a list of questions all of which we need to ask exactly because it's more risk-oriented assessment-based is why it's so useful. So yes, please share a little bit. Yes, we'll go through that. But I have to mention when you raise that point now that uh, some people say that, uh, yes, of course, all processors, they must respond to our 257 question questionnaire and uh, they must do so and otherwise we'll kick them out, etc. I First of all, I don't really understand that approach at all because we're in this together, right? It's uh, a relationship with two parties uh, trying to make the best of the situation and of course it always benefit everybody if you have a good working relationship be it with your uh, client uh, or whomever it is so um, just uh, a little uh, side note there but diving into the guidance from the Danish DPA so they start by uh, so the whole thing here is uh, to determine the processing processing and processor risk profile And this is so key because this goes really into the core of the GDPR. And, you know, we can talk about the risk-based approach all day long. But I think this is amazing because you look at first how many people are involved and they have um, some uh, certain ranges. So you have below 1,000, you have between 1,000 and 10,000 and above 10,000 people. And then you get a scoring based on uh, your responses. So we're not going to go through everything in detail because we're going to link to this in the show notes so people can go and find the uh, translated guidance. And then you look at uh, what uh, type of personal data this is. Because there is a difference between a work email address and really super sensitive medical journals and uh, whatnot. So you also look at that. And then you... And I really like this next one. It's, um, is the personal data otherwise sensitive? So they uh, take into consideration whether the data can be used for uh, identity theft, for example, or your Mm. full social security number. I think that sounds honestly amazing. And it's very nice to see an authority showing that level of understanding of the nuance there, right? Yeah. And um, just I think one of their first examples is like, obviously, you're not going to have the same approach if you're running, um, from what I recall, like a hairdressing salon with the carpenter. Uh, an online booking class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right there. You got your carpenter in, uh, in official guidelines. It's amazing, really. So this is really job well done. But you flagged an incredibly important issue that I want us to backtrack to. So you say 
in your processor role. Sometimes you will receive thousands of questionnaires from different clients, depending on how big of a processor you are, right? You will have controllers saying, hey, I have these questions, fill out my form. And then you will have others doing this and this. So taking a step back, I think it's important, at least how I interpret it purely technically, to understand that the controller has a legal obligation under 28.1 to carry out the due diligence assessment, but that the article between controller and processor contains a contractual clause, sorry, I mean an agreement, contains a contractual clause regulating audits, which means that they can still agree on the actual costs, on who is going to do audits at which time and however. So as long as this duty is fulfilled, how it's actually fulfilled is up to the parties. Do you have any insights from practice about this? Have you ever dealt with a case in which uh, you had to figure out either from controllers or processors perspective how to deal with this conundrum. Yes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. This is what I do all day long almost. And it's all about getting this streamlined and efficient for both parties, right? And the introduction of all the GDPR software has created some real headaches for a lot of the processors because with the click of a button, you can send those awful questionnaires. And I would actually question the controllers who are doing that without any thought. So, of course, many are very conscious about the information they are requesting. But I think it's become a bit too easy to just press a button and request information. And that doesn't necessarily get you compliant because you still have to sort through and know what the information you receive back means and what it means for the processing activity that you have outsourced. So I think a very good communication between the parties are uh, very important and then try to streamline the processors. And I mainly worked with uh, with processors, SaaS processors. And what we always work on is establishing robust policies and procedures, including how to deal with these requests and providing the information that's requested as efficient and streamlined as uh, possible. And so far from all the engagements uh, where I worked on this, the processes that we have put in place have been satisfactory. So we never had pushback from the controllers who initially sent those uh, awful questionnaires because they get the information that they are actually looking for. So really asking the controllers, what is the information that you need rather than responding to those uh, 257 questions. And most people are open for that, to have that discussion and make sure that you get the information that you really need to be able to demonstrate your compliance. Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's all about communication. I know in every single episode we say it's all about communication, but it truly, truly is. And here it's so important. Um, What do you think about like cost splitting and stuff like that? Should a processor be able to say, well, the basic information is on my website. Here is additional information about audits done by a third party auditor, uh, let's say, for these and these purposes. If you want more, we are going to charge you. Um, I remember negotiating around those clauses very often, but honestly, even from a controller role, I kind of thought, well, this is reasonable because if they get people knocking on the door every day, like they won't be able to do their job. I would say it really depends. It depends on the type of business that you have. If you have a a very simple self-serviced SaaS solution, then that's one thing. If you have a hugely complex uh, buy negotiation only agreement structure, that's uh, a whole different animal. But what I really think is key is to look at, is it fair? 
is it fair for both parties? And that is so key. If it's if you feel that it's make make it fair for both parties, then you have come a very long way. So I see all the times I review data processing agreements with really unfair contractual clauses for one of the parties. And very often you have the major firms and corporations demanding very unfair terms from uh, the much smaller uh, counterparties. So uh, not just accepting everything because you are a small business, I think is also worth it. You just try to push back. Many people say that mm. they are so huge you can't negotiate. But every time I hear that, I have asked, have you tried? And every time they say, mm. no, we haven't tried. So the worst uh, thing that could happen is that you end up at the same place. <laughs> so at least yeah, try yeah. to push back and, and get adjusted to that. And another thing that I think you can speak a lot to is how people tend to mix up data processing terms with other contractual documents and having that separate i'm not saying you need to have it in a separate document but having the data processing terms as per the gdpr separate from other clauses i think also makes a lot of sense absolutely it does structure wise readability wise in cases of breach of contract in, in every possible scenario i think it makes a lot of sense unless yeah yeah. I could also imagine some <laughs> scenarios, but yeah, um, I think I think that's actually a very fair point that you should try to negotiate and you should just have open open dialogue about this. But say you're engaging a new processor for the very first time and you're doing your 28-1 duty, you're trying to find out about them. You do, a, I almost said the Google search. <laughs> uh, <you try laughs> God forbid. God forbid. Exactly. So you try to find out basically what their track record is. You ask them about this during the meetings. And then you, from time to time, say, follow up with the questionnaires. My problem with this is that as much documentation like this as you gather, uh, it really is not going to change anything unless there is actually a meaningful effort behind this. Mm. What I'm trying to say is exactly, uh, I guess, what you touched upon previously, that you can't just um, create endless forms and just say, like, yeah, whatever happens, I've covered myself. Yeah, and then uh, not everybody would respond to those questionnaires. And does that mean that the, that party is unfit for your needs? So, <laughs> you know, um, everybody needs to do due diligence of their processors. Again, yeah. it depends on what type of business you are running. Because there is a difference if I am the carpenter and I'm doing due diligence on the software for internal emailing uh, with the, the three people that's uh, employed in my company versus a uh, public health institution or national security. So the level of due diligence and the level of the audit of the processor always comes down to so many factors, which makes it very difficult to, to, understand, to grasp how to do this in practice, which is why the guidance from the Danish DPA is so valuable, because you can also use that from the perspective that you're going into a due diligence to assess a new processor. But at least, you know, checking the website, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to have to say this, but we still have unsecure websites 
in 2022. Yes, it is true. <laughs> so the website must be secure and they should have a privacy website notice or data protection, fair processing information or what you want to call it. There should be some information there about how they process data as a data processor. And I would say that that is the least of my... The, I absolutely expect to find that information now on websites for those who process data on behalf of others. So doing that high level, and then if they pass that, you go deeper into it, reviewing the data processing terms. You actually have to read that uh, privacy uh, policy or notice as well, because as we have spoken before on this podcast about Google's terms and their privacy policy and mix up between controller and processor and all that good stuff, you need to make sure that you understand what, how they will actually process the, the personal data on your behalf. Exactly. So actually to get a little bit meta toward, I, I started with Google, now I'm on to meta, but to get a bit meta <laughs> towards the end, uh, one, of the, one of the things I've heard about or like one of the concerns that came to my attention once was, okay, yeah, we're going to do due diligence on our data processor, but then we need to find out whether or not they're corrupt, whether or not they're associated with criminal organizations, which means we have to run a background check on uh, some of their key staff. But that's illegal. That's Article 9 data. So we can't really do due diligence on this processor. <laughs> because doing due diligence would mean processing criminal record data of people who are in the leadership. Believe it or not. Well, that's interesting because the ICO, they have actually uh, a whole section on their website uh, about that type of vetting. So, uh, oh, yes, really? they do. <laughs> What's their conclusion? Because off the top of my head, I just said, uh, you know what, legitimate interest plus Article 9 would be exercise of legal claims or something. I pulled it out entirely. Yeah, I think I think that this what is a separate uh, podcast episode, so I think we'll yes. have to uh, to note that down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's a, like always like that with the two of us, especially. Yeah. <laughs> I love going off on tangents. But what I wanted to also uh, mention about the guidance that I uh, that we were going through. So when you have looked at all these factors, right, about the number of people and the type of personal data and is there is there special processing and uh, all of that, then you summarize the number of points that you get for each question you answer. And that will give you a sum which indicates then which concept, they call it like an audit concept, you should choose for the audit of that processor. So yes, it might be high level, and it might not be suited to everyone. I know others, they have used this and built upon it to build a really, really thorough process for their processors. But it gives you a, an excellent starting point. And at least you can categorize your processor so that you see that, okay, we are using this processor only for our website uh, analytics. And although there may be many people involved that visit our website, there is no special category processing, no special processing. There's no sensitive data whatsoever. So we might suffice here with a bi-yearly confirmation from the processor that, yes, the data processing terms are still valid. And I absolutely love that the Danish DPA, they actually give us that type of guidance. If you score one or two points, you can opt for a bi-weekly a check-in with the processor. And this is guidance that I have also given 
to my data processor clients that when you get these requests, we have already scored this and we have prepared response to those uh, customers, the controllers, that this is the level of audit that the authorities expect from you. So that should be good enough for you too. Mm, that's actually a very, very good point. So as a processor, be proactive, yes. right? Start documenting these things by yourself. I think that's actually a very valuable takeaway. Yeah, and it works. We know it works. That, so uh, it's uh, good for both parties because you don't spend time uh, auditing the processors that aren't really handling any of your sensitive data so that you can actually spend your time on the most uh, more sensitive cases. Because we can't do everything 100%. We can't be 100% compliant for all of the processing, for all of the people. And therefore, we approach the GDPR and how we do this based on risk, right? So we manage the highest risk uh, cases and then mm. we can uh, distribute our time accordingly. And it's so wonderful to see an authority. Basically, you know, this is the extension of reasoning around DPIAs as well. And then you extend this also as a general principle of law, like would a reasonable person have checked? And it's so nice to see that standard extended to something like this by the Danish DPA. And it's so nice to see that processors can actually take active steps, as you say. Yeah. But reasonable or unreasonable people aside, I think that I'm going to be extra unreasonable today. And I am going to start reading on a very obscure article for our next episode. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I just have to wrap up with one thing, and that is, please document your due diligence uh, processes and document everything. Less is not more with the GDPR. Everybody who works in this field know that. But make sure that you actually document what you have done. So that was um, my last tip of the day. Helsinger and two others like me. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>